in Canberra and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick and it's a pleasure to be with you here on another Sunday morning. No matter the weather outside, you can guarantee that we'll be here talking science on your radio. Thanks very much to Irish Voice for the show beforehand, but now we dive into the world of science. This week we have a couple of guests with us who are all part of the Pint of Science Festival. If you haven't heard of Pint of Science before, it's an international festival which has been running in Australia for the last seven years. This not-for-profit science festival aims to bring local researchers out of the lab to speak with the public about their current science research. Normally I go off to a pub uh, and uh, host some of these events for the Pint of Science Festival and, and chat to these scientists with a beer in hand. But last year, due to COVID restrictions, the uh, festival went fully virtual. And last year, they had over 450 presenters and over 5,000 views on live stream events. It was fantastic uh, work last year. And they're continuing in the virtual fashion this year, which means I'm lucky enough to do a podcast takeover, a radio show takeover for Pint of Science this week on Fuzzy Logic. And we have two local scientists from the University of Canberra to share some of their work with us. So I'm super excited to welcome them both to you today, listeners. Our first interview is from the University of Canberra. It's Dr. Damoth Harath. He's an associate professor in robotics and arts. He calls himself a roboticist, though, and I'm very curious to find out more. Good morning, Damoth. Good morning, Roderick. Thank you for having me. Now, a pleasure to, to have you here. Now, you call yourself a roboticist. What, what does that mean? What's, what's that title about? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, <clears throat> I like to see myself as both building and um, testing robots. And, um, and that's slightly different from just being an engineer or, um, or a scientist. So it's kind of, you know, it has its own unique place as somebody who works with robots. Uh, so that, that I find a more alluring title <laughs> compared to an engineer or a scientist. That, that sounds reasonable to me. I mean, I guess uh, a physicist, you know, uh, studies and experiments in the world of physics. You're studying and experimenting in the world of robotics. Um, and building too. And building them too, which is, which is fantastic. So how does, well, let's, let's jump down that path. How do you build a robot? It's a funny you ask, actually, um, because we, we just finished, um, uh, you know, one of our units in robotics at UC. And um, <clears throat> one of the students, one of the questions from one of the students was actually, how do you build a robot? Because we've been carrying a lot of theory and, and I think that it got to a point like, you know, they, they were thinking like, are we actually going to build a robot or not? Because we were, we were covering a fair bit of ground in different angles. So, so just to kind of answer that in, in a more, you know, <laughs> round robin way, robotics actually in a number of different disciplines and different sciences and, and engineering. So it's, it's a fairly involved area. You can't just, you know, it, it's not like um, a specific science or a specific engineering. So it requires a number of different elements to work together, right? So <clears throat> to build a robot, actually, you need to know a few different, you know, areas. You need to have, you know, a fair few bit of experience in different areas. Um, so depending on what you actually want to build, you know, it could be a really simple toy car-like robot, then it's kind of like, you know, RC car. 
that's fairly straightforward. I mean, you get a few motors, you know, put a little chassis in. And these days, you know, you've got 3D printing, so it's fairly relatively easy to build a robot at that scale, right? And then on the other scale, you've got, you know, robots like the Boston Dynamics, you know, Mini Dog and the, and the Atlas Humanoid Robot. So that, you know, that's a completely different kind of ball game. So in between those two, um, to build a to, to build a robot, I think you need to have a bit of understanding of mechanical aspects of it, electrical aspects of it, programming. Uh, and then, you know, you could start with something simple like a little toy car. So that's still a robot in my definition. I think yeah, well, actually, that's, that's what was going to be my question was what, what defines a robot? What makes a robot different from a machine? One of the jokes that, you know, we have in, in, in robotics is like, show me a robot and then I'll, I'll tell you whether it's a robot or not, right? So it's, it's really hard to kind of define because um, for peop- you know, different people, a robot could be a different thing. So, for example, a you know, modern Tesla car on you know, its self-driving mode is a robot uh, by many definitions, right? At the same time, um, <clears throat> a drone you know, flying on its you know, path, pre-programmed path, that's still a robot. Um, Atlas robot, that's still a robot. Um, and, and robots that are kind of used in manufacturing for automation, that sort of thing, that, that's, that's a robot. So there are, you know, number of potentialities for a robot. And one of the things that we, you know, as, as a formal definition, we like to call uh, a robot that can sense, plan, and act. Uh, if that machine fits that definition, then that's a, that's a robot. So that's kind of a, a sort of a formal definition for that. Yeah, sense, plan, and act. I like that. Um, it's, there's some um, some interesting things there that uh, that you're diving into. So I guess well, let's dive into to some of your work that you're doing. And um, you mentioned to me that you like to investigate robotics in the wild. Uh, what does that mean to you? So to probably approach that, I think that that requires a bit of a definition as to what kind of robotics I do. Um, yeah, so, so I'm, I'm jumping the gun there. <laughs> no, right. no, that's a fair call. Uh, so my my PhD was in in what is called sim, uh, simultaneous localization and mapping problem. So looking at um, if 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 a robot is say for example on Mars in an unknown ter- in territory, right, uh, and you don't have a map and you don't have a GPS system and things like that, so you can't really work out where the robot is. Um, so there are two problems that you need to solve to make sure that robot can go from A to B on that surface, okay? So the first one is the robot needs to have a map of, of the terrain. Well, that's kind of like, you know, when we are you know, using Google Maps, for example, to get, go from A to B. Right? So that's one part of the problem. The second part is if I have a map, then I need to figure out a way to find where I am on the map, right? I mean. Like, you know, in Canberra, we have these maps everywhere. Like in, in the Civic, for example, <laughs> you got these maps in different places. But then somebody was you know, nice enough to put a little you know, arrow and say, like, you are here on that map, right? So once you That's kind right. of know... It makes a big difference on that map when you know where you are. Absolutely. Than just having a map, yeah. Exactly, right? So that is the second problem, knowing where you are on that map. Now, for a robot, it's, if it's kind of in an in a unknown place without a map, you don't have either, right? So how do you figure out one and then work out the other? It's kind of like a chicken and egg problem. And until very recently, you know, people 
didn't think that can be solved in any kind of mathematically rigorous way. So early 2000s, actually a bunch of researchers from uh, Australia figured out that there's a, a optimal solution that 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 can actually uh, you know produce a map and then localize yourself within that map. So once you kind of figure that out, then <clears throat> then you can start developing algorithms around that. So that you know things like the master or the self-driving cars, for for that matter, can um, go to an unknown place and kind of develop a map while it's driving there, and then find out where it is exactly on that map. So my PhD was slight in a small part of that that problem. Uh, so I was using a specific set of sensors and and trying to do that in a specific context. So that that kind of was my PhD. Uh, so I know this is a bit of a long-winded answer, right? But um, hear me out. So that was in the early 2000s, and that's kind of when um, the whole excitement about self-driving cars actually started to to sort of you know uh, blossom because of of that specifically kind of people realizing that this problem can be solved, uh, and that and then uh, the DARPA grand challenges that you know there was a series of um, challenges that you know the U.S. Department of you know, Defense kind of funded. So yeah. Okay. So sorry. Um, just just to jump in there. So you're talking <laughs> about the that was the point where we realised self driving cars. Because to me, self driving cars is you know relatively recent. But you, but early two thousands that that work that you were part of there is kind of that um, that foundational level of determining where that was going to go. That's correct. Um, so I mean, one one of the I think um, inflection point was that grand challenge. So. Uh, early 2000, I think it was 2007 or 8, sorry, I can't remember the exact year, when they had the first um, DARPA Grand Challenge. So this was to uh, get a, um, a self-driving vehicle from point A to point B in Mojave Desert, uh, fully autonomous. So nobody can intervene. They just give you the route, and then it, it has to drive through the road. And, and and it was hilarious because some of the cars just didn't go more than a few kilometers. Uh, some just didn't even start. And then a um, couple of them, you know, finished like um, the the one from Stanford. Um, and that that team actually got then brought up by you know Google, and and that's how the whole self driving um, you know juggernaut kind of started. And 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 so I was you know a tiny part of that, like you know I was doing a very specific one using a specific sensor. And the irony for me actually was that, you know, the sensor that I was using was very expensive, like $3,000. Um, and, and immediately after I published my PhD, um, a new sensor came out, um, which is, I think uh, most people are familiar, the, the Kinect sensor that, you know, you you find with oh, Xbox. In the Xbox, yes, I've yeah. used an Xbox Kinect, yeah. Exactly, right. So... That came out, and that was like $150. So my PhD wasn't really relevant afterwards. <laughs> oh, so that's how I ended up actually then. Um, I mean, that's not entirely true, but I was actually looking for a postdoc after my PhD. Uh, and specifically because, you know, that, that specific work that I did um, didn't have much life because of the new change, the kind of the new sensor that, that came into market. Um, and I was... You know, also looking for a postdoc or a kind of job after PhD, as as you do when you finish a PhD, and then an artist um, was introduced to me by the name of Stalak. Um, I don't know if if some of your listeners might know he's a he's a he's actually I think a national treasure. I mean he's in his seventies, 
um, you know, Wired magazine called him uh, Australia's um, Australia's legendary artist. Um, so he works in this kind of you know robotics realm. Uh, he's he's been a media and performance artist for you know three decades now. So I got introduced to him, and he said, "Like I got this robot, I need some engineer to work on it." So I joined with him, and we started developing this robotic art installation. So how I, that's how I kind of got into robotic and art, right? But then, being a researcher, I need to find my you know area that I can work on, like you know, do a bit of research as well. So. This particular field is, is, a, is a new growing field called human-robot interaction. Uh, so I didn't understanding how humans and robots can work together. So I found that you know the working with artists kind of developing these interactive installations quite quite intriguing because it doesn't have you know kind of the, the sort of you know rigor of a engineering problem, but it still requires some engineering solution. But at the same time, you need to kind of fit the brief of an artist that's more in the human realm. So finding that niche and, and kind of trying to develop these, you know, ideas around how humans and robots could interact um, got me into this new field called human-robot interaction. And then I found that it's actually useful to do these kinds of experiments with real humans in real settings, right? Like the Questacon in Canberra, for example, where we've done a fair bit of experiments. So that's what, uh, you know, doing experiments in the wild means. Like, actually, we take our robots out of the um, lab and then put it in real, you know, wild settings so that we can understand how real people interact with those robots and what are the failings of our robots that actually need to be improved so that they can really work in more engaged situations. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely very different, yeah, taking things out of the lab and putting them in real situations. Um, how did working with Stellark change uh, your view on robotics with, with his artistic perspective on things? Um, it's actually, I mean, so I've been working with Celac for now more than 10 years. And it has been an ex, you know, exceptional journey. Uh, it's a completely different realm. And I've been challenged a number of times and, and, um, and, and in, in a really, you know, really different ways. And one of the you know the things that I I have you know recently gotten used to, and I you know as an engineer you never really get used to kind of the the the, the different dynamics in all in artistic practice, right? So it, it's a completely different perspective from a scientist or an engineer. Um, so Stella used to say, you know, we need to make mistakes. I mean, that's there are you know really funny anecdotes. If if we got time, we can, you know, explain some of that. Uh, you know, he said like, you know, we need to make more mistakes, right? And as an engineer, you know, what the difficult things like you you should not be making mistakes as an engineer because you have to be precise, and and your work is you know very, very well defined. So. Having that idea and kind of getting used to that idea has been one of the challenging ones, but I'm appreciating it more and more, you know, as I kind of mature working in this kind of interdisciplinary space. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's really interesting. That uh, that whole idea of uh, failure, because I it's something that I always find fascinating. Because yeah, we we get taught so much when we grow up as kids that no, you have to do things and do them right. Um, but uh, but failure is definitely an opportunity to learn um, and and develop from there. 
So let's let's um, dive into some of your your work now and your your research projects. Um, what? Um, yeah, well, look, I, I'm, I'm going to let you pick because you've got got some some broad areas here that uh, that you want to dive into. But what's one of the the great examples that you've found taking your work into the wild and and learning from the, the human interactions with the robots? I'll probably take one of our in a long-running project that I worked with Stalak. Um, so this is called the Articulated Head. Um, uh, so Stalak, I mean, half-jokingly said at, in a long time ago that he um, he get all these, you know, invites to go to conferences, right, and, and talks and keynotes. And so, like, it's had, you know, difficult to kind of be in different places at the same time. So I thought, like, I need to have a, you know, digital version of me that I can just give it to give to people <laughs> to give talks at conferences. Um, I don't know how, what the truth of that is, but that's kind of the, the, the joke, uh, you know, in the, in the group. So he created a um, digital um, avatar of him himself um, that can you know, talk and answer questions. So there's a, like a you know, bit of a chatbot that uh, it's kind of like a little AI agent. This is long, long before the Siri and, and all these other chatbots, you know, came to market. So this is, we are talking about, uh, you know, early two thousands again. So he, the 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 robot, like the, the agent, is kind of like you know modeled after Stellark. So it's you know kind of like a digital copy of robot of Stellark. So people can you know type in questions and the robot, the, the, the virtual Stellark answers. And he actually literally uh, used that to give talks at conferences as well. So he would script the whole talk and upload that into the into the um, the agent, and then it'll you know displayed on the screen, and then it's it start delivering that, and and you know that kind of worked very nicely. So that was still a virtual uh, system. So he wanted to have like a physical embodiment of it. So he wanted to have that head embodied in a physical robotic system. So that's where I came in. Like we. Then used the um, industrial robot arm to develop um, a kind of a presence for that digital head. So it, it's quite a really interesting um, system. So uh, for for audience, if you could imagine uh, having this, you know, industrial robot arm that you see in a car manufacturing plant, and then uh, instead of you know a, a tool at the at the, the tip or a, you know some welding mechanism or something like that. You have a screen, and on that screen, um, a virtual face of Stellark is displayed, right? So this middle-aged person, kind of <laughs> on a screen, mounted onto a robot arm. And what we've done is to actually integrate a number of different sensors around that robot, so it can detect, you know, if, if there's a human in that space, um, if, if the person is talking, or if it's coming closer to the robot or moving away from the robot. Uh, so it kind of responds to all these, you know, stimuli. From the environment, so if you could imagine this you know, robot, like, so you walk into this space, and the robot kind of you know come close to you. Um, so it's kind of mounted to a base, and it just you know it can move only its arm, right? So uh, it it comes to you, towards you, and then you can ask a question and then have an interaction. And if you walk around, it'll follow you. And um, we had this installed at the Powhaus Museum in Sydney for two years. And you know, kids started playing with it, and it, they can play hide and seek and things like that. So that provided a really nice platform for us to study, you know, humans engaging with a robot in a in an interactive setting in the white. And that's that's a really interesting one there because you've taken a, a machine 
that's used on our mechanic lines, um, you know, in, in various manufacturing industries, that sort of thing, and literally just popped a TV on the end of it with a, with a head there, and suddenly it changes the the whole perception of the the thing I would feel because suddenly, rather than just being a machine, it's a machine with a face. Did do you feel that changed how people interacted with it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many, um, you know, anecdotes I can share. Like, you know, it's quite amazing. Um, so one of the things, because, you know, even though I was programming it at the beginning, I mean, we, we had a team after, you know, when we kind of the progress, but initially I was programming it and, and I used to be in this, you know, lonely lab and I was the only one programming. And I occasionally kind of feel like, you know, that there's, there's something more about this, moving talking thing like i i definitely know that it's all pre and it's all programmed i mean even though the motions were kind of evolving depending on the stimuli so there's no specific um motions be programmed into it like that there's no you know at time t you know do this and that sort of thing so it's, it's actually emerging from the environment uh but even though i know the mechanics of it like you know i feel like it's it's you know there, there's something about it like you know there, there's there's some humanness so early on like i'll show you one you know, funny story. Um, so early on in, in that lab, so I would, you know, most days I would let it run overnight just to kind of test the system. So it, it so it happened that, you know, a lot of nights these security guards would walk around and, you know, check all the all the rooms, right? Uh, so in this particular day, I had the system, you know, fully functional. And, and what happened is that, you know, if there's nobody around the robot, uh, the robot kind of falls asleep. Right, and then if it hears a noise, so somebody walks into the vicinity, then it kind of wakes up and say hello. All right. So this particular night, like midnight, the security, you know, this lonely security guy is just kind of ch checking all the rooms, and he opens this door, and then still like wakes up and say hello. <laughs> so I don't know exactly what happened that night, but the next day when I was actually coming to work to the lab, uh, head of security was there. And he had a really, you know, you know, kind of really worried look on his face. I was like, you know, um, are you done with that? I said, yes. Uh, what do you have in that room? <laughs> that scared my colleague. <laughs> so that's like, you know, I mean, that's that's quite interesting because uh, and 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 when we actually had it, you know, installed at the at, at the Powers Museum. For two years, um, there's a number of people who would, you know, repeatedly visit it and, and interact with it. And there's one uh, poignant kind of memory. Um, so after two years, we were decommissioning it and um, and we were just taking things apart. Right? So the, the robots kind of shut down and it's kind of in this hunched position. Uh, it's really sad. I mean, we were all, you know, kind of really sad as well. Like, you know, it was, you know, two years really, really had a good run. And then... Um, Again, a security guard. So at at the Powers Museum, this uh, security person came in, and he, you know, we were starting a chat, like you know, um, so that um, Damit, so these guys know us now by now because we've been there for two years and we've been hanging around with them. So I said, really sad to see, um, you know, the articulator is kind of leaving us. I think he knows me. <laughs> right. So yeah. that was that was really. Um, you know that was really a hard moment because the, the 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 software never remembers anyone like that that system doesn't remember anybody like it doesn't it can detect faces but it can't recognize that you know that's broader like it, it can't do that right but this uh, security guard 
kind of felt that you know, there was a inherent connection between him and, and the robot. Well, that's purely emerging from those interactions and, and the motions that that robot elicits, right? So that was really kind of like an aha moment. We thought, you know, that that gives us this indication that, you know, th- things like this could be useful in a number of different, you know, it, it affords us a number of different possibilities to help humans in all sorts of different ways. So that's that's one example um, um, <laughs> of, of how we, you know, kind of use that that experience in the wild. No, I think that's such a great example there because it's really showing that it's not always about the the analytical programming side of things there, but it it was the human nature of that um, that robot that really helped connect with the security guard or scare the security guard <laughs> around those side of things. So how how are you incorporating that that human element into your human robot interactions on the the robotic side? So we are really early stages of kind of understanding what that dynamic look like. Um, just to give a kind of um, context to what we are trying to do. So if you could imagine the, the the smartphone, you know, 30 years ago, it wasn't that smart. And, and you know, the early kind of Ericsson era phones, you know, had really clunky interfaces, right? So if, if you want to dial somebody, you know, that's about, you know, three, um, you know, three layers down that you can get to that. So that interface, we didn't know what that interface should look like. And... People like what Steve Jobs did was to kind of improve that interface and and make those designs intuitive and human friendly. So that's for human compute interaction, and there's a large body of research done already about human compute interaction. Um, so we know a lot about how to build interfaces for the computer, and that's why you know, uh, like you know, one year old child could you know get their mom's iPad and and go to YouTube and play their favorite video, right? Like there's no need for them to train or they, they don't need to kind of go through a manual how to sort that out. That's very interior. So what we're trying to do in our research is to actually understand what that interface should look like for a robot. I mean, robots are more complex because they're, you know, these 3D um, dynamic objects, right? And, and, and the moment when you say a robot, people have certain expectations about them. So that kind of complicates and colors uh, what the interface should look like. And and dynamics inherently means you know there are potential dangers, errors, and and other kinds of issues that could crop up when that robot is actually operating with a human. So it's about kind of managing all these expectations, technical difficulties, uh, safety issues, and also kind of on top of that, now we have ethical issues that are you know of important uh, to consider as well. So it's about kind of identifying all these different mixes and figuring out what is an interface for a robot should look like. So that's kind of the, the closest analogy I can give, you, give to you. Like the, the simple answer is we don't really know what it is. Like, you know, we're all exploring it from different angles. Yeah, and I guess um, the, the, yeah, trying to work out what it is, uh, are we trying to, to go down a path where uh, the robots are mimicking and replicating us as humans, or are we trying to go down a path where we have robots that are designed to to help us, but not necessarily looking like us, just being practical um, practical machines that uh, that can 
you know, um, help us in that situation? Which which way is is your inter- are your interactions taking you? Yeah. So my inner engineer tells me a robot is a tool, right? So then the the kind of the utility kind of defines the the form, right? So form should be defined by what it meant to do. Uh, on the other side, the human element kind of tells me like you know that you know they 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 could be more than a tool right so um you know working with an artist like Stalak, i mean we've we done a number of other projects with artists uh in all sorts of different contexts and each one of them brings that human element into the foreground right so th- there's always this kind of different uh tension between i, I just want to kind of get get the th- get the job done like you know if it's a washing machine that's all you need. Like, let's let it be a washing machine. It doesn't need a face to do it. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I mean, honestly, I've been experimenting with all these these different angles. So, like, you know, there's not a set of singular evidences emerging from that 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 discussion as to which direction we want to go. For example, uh, currently one of my um, research students actually exploring the importance of face. Um, you know, to, whether to have a face or not in a robot. Um, so there is early evidence to show that, you know, having a, um, a kind of a dynamic face actually makes the interaction more engaging and, and trustworthy. Uh, and that's in a very specific context when, when they were exploring only the face. So what we've done is actually to do the same experiment in a more kind of wild setting and using real robots with, you know, real interactions. And then we are finding that, you know, the face wasn't that important. Uh, so we've done a study. It's, you know, part of it is currently published. The other part is not. Um, so the same robot with a face and without a face uh, interacting with people and people found both of them are, you know, equally, you know, plausible and and engageable at the same sort of scale. There's no difference between having a face or not having a face. So that's kind of telling, right? So so we don't really need to go down the path that the robot has to have a face and it has to be a humorite kind of direction. So that's kind of what signal, I think the signal we are getting from that particular experiment. Um, But then there are some other contexts, you know, having a face actually could be important. Um, For example, when we we did a, a study a few years ago, where we gave these uh, vacuum cleaning robots to people to take them as um, um, little robot babies so they can adopt them for six months. And initially, that they, like, they didn't have any faces or anything, right? But then one uh, study participant actually put two googly eyes on the robot. And I was like, you know, why did you do that? And, and she said, uh, because I need a little you know, point of reference so that I can talk to this, my little baby robot. Uh, so that kind of indicates that a face could be important. That could be like a importance in that direction. Yeah. So I, I guess that probably then dives in if we start looking at robotics in in areas where you do need to form connections and that sort of thing. Because I know, uh, for example, health um, and that side of things um, where where ro- robots could start playing more of a role. Has your research started to look into to healthcare and and robotic interactions there? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's actually one of my um, most satisfying projects, like in a, something that I really enjoyed at a, at a deeply personal level. Um, so this, is, again, it kind of involves um, an artist. So Patrick Tressay is the artist. Um, 
he's developed a series of robots actually that can uh, draw portraits of humans. So it's a beautiful piece. If you search for Patrick Tracy, um, a robot named Paul, you'll find you know, a lot of videos about his work. So I would not describe exactly what it is. Um, so two years ago, we actually invited him to, to Canberra to use his um, uh, hospital. So we have a, a kind of rehabilitation hospital on campus. Uh, what we did was to actually have this robot uh, set up in the foyer of the hospital and invite patients to come and sit for a portrait. And um, it was so amazing that almost all the like the patients in in you know the the wards that we can uh, invite patients from they they sign up for that and they came and sit there for you know thirty minutes. And had their portraits drawn, and and the beautiful part of it is like once the port the robot draws a portrait, it actually gets hung up, uh, hung on the, on on one of the walls, so people can see it for the the entirety of the exhibition, and um, and that then kind of developed into this conversation and a community. So one of the um, um, staff members from the hospital said, like, of you know, this project actually turned the the hospital into a community. And, and and you know, people you know have all these you know all sorts of you know debilitating conditions they're being treated for, and they all kind of forget about that and and you know enjoy that interaction with the robot, getting their portrait drawn and and having these you know critical conversations around, you know, did the robot get it right? You know what 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 it means for a robot to do this and that sort of so, so this was our kind of initial intervention to understand. And specifically, what, what what we can do in the robotics context in this sort of human robot interaction space. Um, so that that project tells told us a lot about you know how we can again help with robots. So it didn't really replace anybody. The artist was there, the robot was there, um, and we all kind of worked together to kind of create this collaborative environment where, at least for that period of time, everybody came together and actually. Uh, you know, build a con conversation around robotics and a community around, you know, uh, engaged roboticists and, you know, health practitioners and, and patients and visitors all kind of working together. So that was one, one of our like, first interventions. And uh, we find that doing, you know, that kind of creative robotic interventions probably have a future in the healthcare space, apart from all the other, you know, robotics interventions that's happening already. Yeah, that's no, uh, sounds like an amazing project there. Um, and again, and working with an artist, I feel like uh, this is this is your mode as a roboticist, <laughs> Pair, pairing up with the artist. You're clearly picking up and learning a lot from that that creative side. Um, do you feel like uh, creativity plays a, a key role in what you're doing when you're trying to set you know new directions for for cutting edge work that we haven't done before? Absolutely. I think, again, this is where I kind of having more more and more kind of appreciation for working with and collaborating with artists because they, they you know, they think differently. And, and I, I like to see art as being the the kind of the ability to bring the, the element of surprise, right? So engineers, we don't like surprises. We like to know the model. Right? So always like, you know, what's the model? And as long as you know the model, yeah, good. You know how it's going to operate, but for the artist, it's completely opposite. You know, it's it's about that element of surprise. Um, 
with that actually comes, you know, new possibilities. So um, uh, one of the things that actually, um, you know, draw me out of academia. So I've, I've been away from academia for about five or six years now uh, before joining back at UC um, and running my own startup in robotics. And that happened purely because of the work we did with Stellac, the artist. Um, so I find that those creative sparks and, and kind of left of field thinking that comes with the artist actually brings you new possibilities and perspectives that you can take on board. And then, uh, and then you can try to fit them into your models. Uh, and you have to, yeah. That's that's um, that's a really great way to look at it. Fitting fitting those those creative ideas to the scientific models. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're definitely working in in an area that I call futuristic now. But um, what do you see as the next 10, 20 years in in robotics? Where's where's your work, or where's the field of robotics going to be heading? I don't have a crystal ball, but <laughs> uh, I mean, it's certainly interesting times. Um, so like, you know, the, 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 the 40s, 50s, you know, that was a really interesting time for computers uh, all the way up to 80s uh, when, when the microcomputers happened and, and, and whatnot. I see robotics as a, as a sort of a microcosm of, you know, something like the computer revolution, you know, 50, 60 years ago, um, because right now we have fairly um, good computing capabilities, uh, really good sensors, like you know, the, this, this simple example I gave you, what happened to my PhD work with an expensive sensor suddenly becoming you know, $300. Um, it's the same with a lot of other sensors. They are, you know, they are, they are becoming more robust, um, you know, shrunk in the size and the cost. Um, and and we we have developed considerable understanding of how a lot of systems work now, so we have all the tool toolboxes, so to speak, uh, especially from computing computing field, from computer vision, from machine learning, from artificial intelligence, uh, coming into our toolboxes in robotics. So you know, for the next 30, 40 years, I think it's a really a really it's going to expand. Now, having said that. I have reservations about the the kind of the hype cycle we are in as well. Uh, I, I don't know. You might remember. I mean, your audiences might remember that uh, a few years back there was a huge hype around robotics, and you know, companies like Google start buying you know number of robotic startups, and and it was kind of you know self driving cars going to be you know around the corner, <laughs> pun intended. Um, and now that you know we hear Elon Musk himself kind of you know backing up or his his um, self-driving car uh, chief engineer kind of backing away from his kind of claims that, you know, we're going to have, you know, level three, four autonomy in the next couple of years, right? So one thing that I've been always saying, and I've kind of experienced myself, robotics take longer. Like it's it's kind of the inherent nature of robotics. A computer vision, for example, is, is you know, it's grown really rapidly. I wouldn't say that's happening to robotics anytime soon. But slow and steady research over a, in a substantively longer period, so we're looking at 10, 20 years, will yield some really exciting possibilities in robotics. So I think you know, that's, you know, should, should watch this space, I would say, like uh, in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. 
And so you're talking about slow transitions there. Is that because of uh, the advances in the technology or is that because people need to get used to the ideas as they come through? It's a combination of both. <clears throat> and also um, because robotics is inherently hardware-based and, and they are extremely difficult to rapidly prototype. So one of the advantages um, the computer science people had they can prototype things very quickly. Like, you know, it's all in, in, in the computer. You know, nothing gets burnt or destroyed in the process. <laughs> and they're relatively, you know, inexpensive. But a robot, you know, building one robot is, you know, it's it's extremely expensive process. And if some you got some one thing wrong, you know, you had to go to you know drawing board and actually rebuild the whole thing. And these are very expensive propositions, right? Each one of them takes time. Um, for example, my PhD student was really enthusiastic to build this new robotic gripper for cloth recycling. And um, we are into his second year of PhD and he's still building a prototype. <laughs> so he was thinking like he could finish that in like six months and then he started, you know, doing the more the experimental stuff. But he's still, you know, two years into the project and still building it. So th there's a lot of inherent... Um, Inertia built into robotics that, that requires that, you know, careful curated time to evolve them. So, you know, that's, unfortunately, that's something that we don't have in the, in the kind of the modern day. Like we are really eager to have very quick results and, and then you lose, you know, that excitement pretty quickly and, and the funding cycle goes down as well. So if you, if you can sustain that interest and, and support, I think uh, there's, you know, some really fantastic possibilities for robotics. It definitely sounds like um, some amazing stuff going to happen. And, um, yeah, really interesting to hear about uh, the way you envision it too with uh, the artists and the robots coming together to it. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing your work today uh, with our listeners here on Fuzzy Logic. Thank you for having me. And that was uh, Dr. Damethrath from uh, the University of Canberra, a roboticist, uh, sharing some of his creative work in robotics and art.
Sticks there with Mr. Roboto. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM 98.3 here in Canberra and streaming online at 2XXFM.org.au. If you do pop online, you can also subscribe to 2XXFM where you can support the station to continue to run fantastic shows like Fuzzy Logic and many others. Today on Fuzzy Logic, we're really lucky to have a range of guests with us uh, sharing their work as part of the Pint of Science Festival, which has moved online again this year. Our second researcher today is also from the University of Canberra. It's PhD candidate Kira Bai, who's doing work in microexpressions. Now, Kira, can you start off by telling our listeners what are microexpressions? Yeah, so just as it's them. The micro-expression means very micro-expressions. <laughs> so that means when compared with the, uh, the traditional, the common expression, for example, love, cry, surprise, that is very normal expression. And uh, so we, we could read people's expression and to know what their emotions. But uh, the micro-expression, unlike the common expression, um, they always happens when people try to hide their true emotions. So that is first different. The people try to hide in their true emotion. So it's very hard to be detected. And uh, so consider people try to hide themselves to surprise themselves. So it always happens very fast. And in we always uh, lower and at lower identity means it happens in very small areas on the face. So that the microexpression very subtle uh, facial movement. Yeah. So microexpressions is is that can we control them on our face or is it uh, an unconscious thing that happens? Uh, theoretically, can't. You can't control or you can't fake 
their micro expression. Okay, so and these are the sorts of things. Is it kind of along the same lines as a tell in poker when you're trying to gamble and, and not not show your cards, but um, those little things that your face might do without realizing that tell people what you're thinking? Is that the sort of thing we're, we're looking at here? Yes. Uh, theoretically, yes. <laughs> theoretically, okay, cool. cool. So, so people are are people able to detect this? She says it's really hard to see, but can if you're specially trained, can you see micro expressions on people's faces? Uh, for me, I can't because <laughs> I'm not a trained. For the psychologists, they have been trained, so they could read or detect and recognize people's micro-expression. But even for the trained professional people, their accuracy only reached 46%. So that's a, a pretty low level of accuracy there for, um, for, for trained professionals. Um, so I guess this is where your work comes in because you're looking at uh, artificial intelligence, looking at micro-expression. How does it uh, how does it go with looking at um, that and working out our emotions from? Just as we detect the common expression, we also use the same methods to classify the micro expression. But the difference is the micro expression happens in a very small areas. So it means it, the positive expression, the positive category of micro expression may also means your eyes browns up, your mouth corners up, but it's very small. It's very small and it happens very fast. So for the common expression, it may have it may last one to two seconds. But for the micro expression, it lasts one divided five or one divided twenty-five seconds. Yeah, so a fifth or a twenty-fifth of a second. That's that's really yep. quick detection there. So I guess um that's where computers can come in handy because they're much faster at processing these sorts of things than we are, right? Yep. Yeah, okay. So if they're, they're finding these, these micro-expressions and, and detecting them in a similar way, can they uh, detect them in, in a situation where we're trying to hide our emotions? You know, maybe I'm putting on a big happy face so you can see that big expression, but there's um, some different emotions underlying that. Is, is the AI technique able to find those? Uh, theoretically, we could, but practical. <laughs> uh, until now, from my understanding, no one has been successfully detected micro-expression from the um, macro, I mean, the common expression. <laughs> Yeah, okay. So it's certainly a difficult area. What What's your research focusing on when you're looking at the micro-expressions and how are you using AI for it? Um, I'm focusing on the two directions. The first is, the first is for the depression uh, patients. We have to try to detect the micro-expression and to understand their true emotions. So that is first direction. And the second is for the micro, exp uh, sorry, for the depression. For the uh, people who have suffered from depression for a long time, they will show the sympathize called frozen face. That means their face, um, they will have very slowly action in their motion or expression. 
So um, yeah, it's very hard to, t- to detect any facial motion on their face. So if we could extend the technique that it detect or classify the microexpression to detect their facial motions, we may detect their true mind or true emotion or um, anything that uh, very hard to, det- to be detected by the human-like eyes. In terms of um, the the first part of your project, you talked about using um, this AI detection to find to work, see if we can detect depression in people. What 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 are the what's the hopes that that will help us achieve in in this space? Um, it might start from the how the microexpression were discovered. Microexpression were discovered or proposed by Dr. Paul Ekman. Uh, he discovered microexpression just by repeating review one of his patients' video. So this patient is a woman who actually tried to suicide, but she just pretend she's okay, she everything okay, and uh, try to be uh, present. She's happy. She's happiness. So, but. By repeating review his uh, daily video, Dr. Eggman found um, she's lying and from his, her micro-expression, actually, um, she's very sad. And she tried to, and after, uh, after the treatment, she commits, okay, she tried to suicide herself. So that is our first motivation is... Um, if we could detect the true emotion for the depression patients, we could discover their true emotions and at least their true feelings. So um, even sometimes their feelings can be detected by their uh, expression, their, especially what they're speaking. So we could detect their trifling by their verbal language if we can't detect it from their language. Yeah, and I guess that's probably not uh, an uncommon thing is that people are being deceptive in their verbal language when they are wanting to hide their feelings. Best of luck with um, the the rest of your research as you go through. I'm super curious to see how... um, how we might see applications of this research in the future. What what do you think if um, if everything goes perfectly out of your research, um, how, how do you think it's going to be applied in 10, 20, 30 years time? So the first thing we hope ideally if the if this technique had been um, improved in the positive direction very successfully, the first thing is in um, real time. We could detect and recognize and and report the results of our recognition uh, in in real time, according with the, the the treatment process. So the um, the psychologists could change their uh, treatment plan according with the reports from our system. So it will be more. It will be high infections in their treatment when they're talking with their patients. So the first thing is 
treatment uh, in real time. And and the second is it, it could be applied in the practical life because currently the microexpression detection only happened in the laboratory environment because we need the very stable illumination condition and it's very hard to get in the, uh, the, the, the our daily life in the practical environment so if it could be in the practical environment and the third thing is it could help the um, the psychologist to um, to create or to um, to establish to to establish um, more um, quantitative status to uh, judge the depression. Is that would judge? Mm. Yeah. Because currently the, 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 the standard for the depression uh, mainly by the interaction with the patients. For example, ask the, uh, talking with the depression patients, ask them to fill some, answer some questions or fill the forms. But if we could produce the um, more quantitative result, by detecting the human's microexpression, it may assist in the depression, the diagnose detection. So yeah, so that's great. So potential uh, benefits there for not only diagnosis but um, treatment as well. It's fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time um, today, Kira, for sharing some of your research and uh, sharing the amazing work that you're doing over at the University of Canberra. Thank you. That was Kira Bai, a PhD candidate from the University of Canberra, sharing her work on artificial intelligence in microexpressions. And Kira and Ameth came to us today thanks to the Pint of Science Festival. If you want to find out more details about that, head to pintofscience.com.au for the festival all throughout May, happening virtually in a home near you. If you want to find out more about Fuzzy Logic, you can find us online. We podcast Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com or you can find us on social media and send us an email, askfuzzy at zoho.com. You're listening to 2XXFM and this has been Fuzzy Logic. My name is Broderick Matthews. It's been fantastic to have you here for your science on a Sunday.